In this episode, we're interviewing Dr. Pamela McCaskill, a psychologist specializing in dyslexia, dysgraphia, dyscalculia, and dyspraxia. And we're also tackling a listener question. Dr. Pamela McCaskill, PhD, is a fully licensed clinical psychologist and owner of McCaskill Family Services in Metro Detroit. She obtained her bachelor's, master's, and doctorate degrees from Wayne State University and pursued further specialized training in pediatric psychology at the University of Florida Shands Hospital. Dr. Pam has over 25 years of experience specializing in comprehensive evaluations for dyslexia and ADHD, as well as therapy for anxiety and depression for children, teens, and adults. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Pam. Hi, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Dr. Pam, your practice refers patients to BrainSpring's learning centers. How long has your practice been referring students to BrainSpring, and how did it all start? So we've been referring to BrainSpring for about the last 15 years. Um, it started, so my husband and I um, are both clinical psychologists, and we do a lot of evaluations for dyslexia and other learning challenges. And we spend hours and hours completing these evaluations, and what happens after the evaluation is just as important as evaluation itself. And he worked at a major medical hospital here in the area, and um, after the evaluations, he started to get some feedback from what we didn't know at the time, but it was um, BrainSpring, formerly a different name. And these kids were coming back um, saying, oh, thank you so much for connecting us to them. You know, it's, it's been a game changer things have really improved and um, it kind of started to alert us a little bit. And then he moved into private practice with me out in um, Plymouth and now Brighton. And we just continued that relationship. So um, we have students driving all over um, the Metro Detroit area to get to you. And we're super excited that you have other locations now that are closer because um, we have people driving all over for our evaluations and we can connect them to, um, you know, what happens after the evaluation. Great. Hi, it's Esther. Um, and finally, nice to meet you. Honestly, I have heard your name a lot. So um, as far as um, as far as the social and emotional um, aspect of, of this, how does dyslexia affect the kids outside of academics? I'm sure. It's nice to see you too, Esther. I've heard your name around for quite some time, and it is a pleasure to, to meet with you in this way. Um, so we are, you know, we're psychologists, so we deal a lot with the social emotional aspect of um, functioning in children and teens and adults as well. And what happens is when you have um, a learning challenge such as dyslexia, without proper intervention um, and support, the students are really in a constant state of stress. And the demands are constantly um, higher than their ability to perform in an average classroom setting or learning environment. And so that creates increased anxiety, increased depression. And a lot of that can look like anger and defiance or not wanting to do school or shutting down, um, pushing back, social difficulties, not feeling like they fit in. And um, it, it, it goes kind of hand in hand actually. Um, and we see that the longer that the dyslexia goes undiagnosed, or the longer that they wait um, to receive intervention, the more likely those um, social or emotional problems turn into more serious conditions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's hard to imagine um, a student suffering um, with that and, and being undiagnosed um, because mm -hmm. you'll never find 
you'll never be able to help them if you don't know what the problem is, you know? So um, yeah, I mean, they're being treated then probably for secondary things rather than the dyslexia, probably. I don't know that that's causing it in the first place. So that's gotta be right. Absolutely. I mean, that's what we often um, see coming into our practice. We're, We're sort of known for dyslexia now. So we do get more direct referrals for testing for that, but we oftentimes get kind of the, the tip of the iceberg, which is, you know, my, my child's uh, struggling, you know, with friends or doesn't want to go to school or is mm-hmm. fighting back on homework time or just doesn't seem to be as cooperative. And um, we take a look a little bit deeper and um, very often we find that there's a reason for that. And it's not just pure behavioral or, you know, kids really aren't born to just um, fight authority or to be difficult. Right, <laughs> so. right. Yeah. Wow. That so happens in lots of situations with kids, like acting out when there's a problem. Like my, my son struggled with a lot of anxiety and he didn't want to go to school. He was exhibiting those same behaviors. And then we got to the root of the problem because um, it wasn't, you know, that he didn't like school. So there was something underlying. Going right. on, but. Yeah. And that's what we often, we often get is, you know, punishment isn't working. We've taken everything away. Um, you know, we've tried to structure things. We've done everything that we can and, and we're kind of at a loss for what to do. And that's how, oftentimes how families present to us. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there, those are some red flags that there might be something else going on and, um, mm-hmm. you know, figuring that out first and foremost to then even understand where to go with that. Right. right. And as a parent, when you you when you do, I did the same thing or taking things away or when they're acting out, you know, the natural consequences of things and then when you find out there's actually something else the guilt mm-hmm. that you feel as a parent you're like oh my gosh there was something else mm-hmm. I feel so bad right um yeah so but you know honestly when when parents go through you know treating their behavior first and that doesn't work that's very diagnostic for us so I don't think that that's necessarily lost time mm-hmm. um because we can rule that out as you know something that works or doesn't work so you know I kind of like it when parents come and, and say hey I've tried all of this and you know, I don't like it when they feel guilty for waiting for so long, but sometimes that wait, it, you know, mm-hmm. it gives us some information too. So it's really never too late to, to figure out what's going on and to get proper intervention. Yeah, no, that's so a great doctor, point. No. And, and it made me feel better. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I was just thinking, you know, do you see, typically see kids at a certain age or do you see them all the way up through even beyond high school? Um, or do they, or do you, do parents typically bring them in earlier? Um, or have you seen kids much older um, that have? Um, yeah, great question. Um, we we see the full age range, and so we we work with behavioral problems and emotional problems with so the super young kids we get in early, um, but we you know start to see some signs or symptoms of early signs of dyslexia that we're watching even as young as five or six. Um, and you know it's partly because we've just been doing this for a long time, so we can see some of those early red flags in the in the process, and then. We also get college students who maybe for the first time are really struggling um, and you know, are taking the LSAT or the MCAT or mm-hmm. GREs or other mm-hmm. tests and they're not passing mm-hmm. um, or they're not getting the score that they need. And um, it can be very frustrating because that can put some roadblocks in terms of the career that they would like to do. Um, and they've maybe sort of compensated or got through much of the formal education up through college and then are hitting a wall. Mm-hmm. And so we do evaluations on college students as well. And um, we go back, you know, from to kindergarten and get every single report card, every single um, document that we can get our hands on to see if we can recreate um, if there is a pattern there that might be contributing that might have been missed mm-hmm. because 
you know, sometimes students can just outwork the system and, and maybe not show those behavioral or emotional signs, but they're internally struggling. Mm-hmm. And it, it um, you know, doesn't come out until there's a, a firm roadblock that they can't move. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. um, we help them with that. And then we work closely with the colleges um, to provide some accommodations based on the evaluation, That's which great. can, again, open those doors up for them. That's great. Good. I have a quick question, um, Dr. McCaskill. Um, you know, our dyslexic students, uh, children during this pandemic, how is that affecting them socially, emotionally, with having to learn in any of these remote ways? You know, it's, it's interesting because um, what we're finding and, you know, seven months into this is the students with just, not just, it's, um, you know, not just dyslexia, but with with uh, specific dyslexia, not other difficulties, are actually in some ways doing a little bit better because we can put some of those accommodations right in place at home or through Zoom um, and and the tools and everything are kind of right there at their fingertips. So, um, you know, a lot of the supports and stuff, particularly those students that have had some outside tutoring and know what tools to use, um, they can use them in, in these kind of Zoom sort of classroom settings. Um, children with ADHD, not so much. Um, they're they're struggling, I think, even more. And the combined combination of dyslexia and ADHD is a, is a real struggle because they've lost the scaffolding of the school environment of the classroom. And um, that's very hard to recreate at home um, without other students around to su- sort of support that structure. So it's been kind of interesting. Some of our students are actually thriving. That's awesome. That is interesting. It's very, very, very challenging. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of families are really struggling during this time and um, you know, the behavioral problems are becoming more prominent because the, again, the demands of the situation through Zoom or online learning are just higher than, you know, what is reasonable to expect with somebody with executive functioning or ADHD mm-hmm. difficulties. Even people without difficulties, <laughs> right? Exactly, <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, just the, you know, sitting in front of our computers all day without other interaction or without, you know, sitting in front of a computer all day is hard, you know, so yeah, I get that. Well, and many students are um, you know, left to their own devices because parents are working and also trying to get through this with their jobs and not lose their jobs. And so, you know, the mm-hmm. students that require the most one-on-one attention are oftentimes um, by necessity um, left to their own devices for education. And um, it's a bit of a mess at the moment, but we'll get through it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's- um, so what can a clinician provide beyond a school in terms of evaluating? Um, so uh, a psychologist like outside of the school is um, likely to do a much more extensive detailed outline of the student's strengths and weaknesses and really look at all parts of the brain um, and behavior and emotions. So not only to um, identify what the obvious weaknesses are, but also to figure out what the strengths are so that we can use those strengths to um, you know, help compensate for some of the weaknesses. And, um, you know, we also provide a very clear diagnosis and a a, a comprehensive roadmap or or, um, plan moving forward where we're not just looking at reading per se um, and seeing if there's a problem in reading because there's lots of different reasons why a child might be struggling in school. And if you're just looking at one point of that, um, which the schools, you know, they they do an okay job with that because that's kind of their focus. But if you're um, looking for really a very comprehensive roadmap that can be used for years down the road, um, you really want to uncover everything and not just um, the one area of struggle. Right. And just based on my, my experience, it, it always was that the school psychologist was really there um, to see if students qualify for services, like more in that reading realm or, mm-hmm. and not make a diagnosis. 
Um, and I guess is that is that really the case most of the time? Yeah, it, it absolutely is the case. So the school's evaluations are looking at whether a student meets criteria um, for public education services. And so um, we, we are not. We are looking to see if there is a, a difficulty in a certain area of the brain that it is causing some troubles with learning. And so a student can have dyslexia, but not qualify for services as part of a school-based evaluation, which we often see. And um, it you know, kind of is a little bit like a numbers game. They either are past a certain threshold or not, where we don't necessarily have that threshold, where we're looking at multiple data points to see if there is, in fact, um, a problem. So we often get parents in, um, that had school-based evaluations, and the school you know, reported that we're not finding anything, et cetera. And then a, a couple of years later, the student is still struggling and they come back for the private evaluation. And it, it, it saddens me actually, because it's two years that we've lost of intervention in a, in a child's developing mm -hmm. brain. So, you know, I, I would love at some point um, in my lifetime for those students to be at least picked up, um, you know, and, and, and more thoroughly evaluated. So we don't lose that time, but um, mm -hmm. you know, it's, Especially when you're evaluating for things like mm -hmm. strengths, right. you know, um, and things that they can use in the classroom that they would benefit right, from. Right, right. Mm -hmm. It's a good segue to talk about that brain question because there's a brain question. <laughs> <laughs> Is that mine? I was like, you're looking at me. Oh, no, <laughs> <laughs> <You> can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that was awesome how you kept talking about the brain, and it, it is a brain thing, you know? I mean, um, so mm -hmm. that's good. There's a good segue. Yeah, so. <laughs> I think you said. Because you knew all of the answers, too, right? Yeah. Um, wait, can you, um, can somebody ask me the question? Yes, of course. <laughs> so oh you can't read our books. Uh, I mean, I, I don't even have the questions I'm in like, front of me, so I feel, I'm listening. <laughs> No, I'm like, you're the only one oh, wow. how, how that happened. You were not. We didn't say it okay. at all. I'm totally kidding. Oh, my goodness gracious. Okay. So, you know, many parents, educators really kind of are wondering, really, what does the dyslexic brain look like? Um, so, in terms of um, reading, which is a little bit what we're talking about, although dyslexia captures much more than just reading, um, the brain, we actually have to train our brain to recognize letters, um, take those letters into small units, and then relate those units to sounds. And so it's, it's a bit of a complicated process. Um, and then once we have those sounds, we have to put those together, you know, into words. Um, I don't know how technical you want me to get, but there's, there's essentially two areas of the brain. Um, there's the temporal parietal um, cortex, and that's when we, what we use to sound outwards. And then there's the occipital temporal, that's a big word, um, cortex, and that's the part of the brain that recognizes letters and words visually. Um, so in terms of what the dyslexic brain looks like is there is no brain damage, um, and it has nothing to do with intelligence, um, you know, it's, it's a completely separate thing, but is that um, they're le those areas of the brain, um, in the, it's in the left hemisphere of the brain, they're, they're less active, so they're, they're underperforming, basically. So the brain structures are all there, we just kind of need to like light a match under them a little bit, so to speak, um, to get them to, to kind of kick into gear a little bit more um from a brain-based perspective yeah so that's that's a really great also a really great segue 
into the discussion about how Orton Gillingham um, can actually, you know, rewire the brain. I just did little quotation marks. Nobody could see me do that, but I just did it. Um, so how, how does OG uh, rewire the brain? Um, and what kind of research um, do, you, um, do you have to speak to that? Um, so the, the Orton-Gillingham, which is, you know, the specialized tutoring that BrainSpring does, is it really um, takes a very step-by-step -step approach to activating um, those regions. And the research shows us, so there's, there's MRIs, which is like brain scans, um, while participants are engaging in certain tasks like reading or um, the building blocks of reading. So remember when I said like those sound symbol associations and visually representing those symbols. Um, when they are applying the Orton-Gillingham specialized tutoring, those areas become more active. So that's great news. So there's actually kind of brain rewiring, but systematically activating that in a step-by-step -step way um, improves those brain functions. And there's, there's actual you know, medical research on this. Mm -hmm. And not only that, what's, what's really cool is in the research is it's not only activating that part of the brain, but um, it actually, we see some movement some kind of like light up on the MRI in the right hemisphere, which tells us that not only is the, you know, Orton-Gillingham tutoring um, helping with the specific weaknesses, but it's also activating the other part of the brain to further help compensate. So there's like two things that are going on, which is really, really exciting. And that's, um, you know, it's part of the reason that um, husband John and I were so excited to find people that actually know what they're doing and do this right, mm -hmm. because the benefits are huge. Mm -hmm. um, if, if, you're, if you're truly specialized in this, mm -hmm. um, you can really see, and we're seeing lots and lots of medical studies um, show the, the actual effects of this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you know about how long that takes? I mean, they have to have a very structured, you know, literacy program for how long does that take to, if a, if a teacher were really doing this with, or a tutor doing this for, I don't know, a year, more than a year? I mean, how long does it take to do that? How, does, how long does it take the brain to kind of rewire itself, so to speak? Well, you know, there's a lot of variables that contribute to that. So, you know, early intervention um, is going to be less amount of time. <laughs> um, there's just, you know, um, a, a more direct pathway to that. Um, so the tutoring, tend, in my experience, um, tends to seem to take less time. Um, the longer that you go, um, that rewiring, so to speak, mm -hmm. can take a little, like a little longer, maybe six months, a year, sometimes even a couple years. But if you look at the benefits of what happened during that year, um, I mean, that's lifelong. So yeah. if you're intervening at age 12 and you spend a year or two right. in intensive tutoring, right. um, or inter it's really a more intervention, I like to call it, um, you know, that those benefits last you you know, through college and into your job and, and well beyond. So it's, I see it as a very short amount of time. For sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. I know it's but, just amazing know, it's, to me how fast that can happen. You know, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's always shocking to me that our brain is so fascinating. It can do that. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, we've had students and, like, like benefit in a very short amount of time, but then even kind of stick with the program because as the complexity of the information mm -hmm. increases, or the educational kind of stuff, um, they seem to benefit from some touch points. So they might do a short, you know, intervention and then say, okay, like everything's going great. And then, you know, in a year or so come back for like a, a touch up kind of thing, mm -hmm. which is much less long, um, you know, in terms of the duration of the tutoring. Mm -hmm. When you say early intervention, like how early, like what would be the youngest student that 
um, you would kind of see that you've had to evaluate just out of curiosity? Um, age four or five, because that's when, you know, we start to uh, teach the reading process even a little bit before that. But by mm -hmm. four and five, most students are exposed to letters and sounds and that sound symbol um, combination. You know, start with cat and dog, et cetera. And um, sometimes you can even start to see the struggle pretty early on. Um, there might be some early warning signs with speech problems or other, th you know, other things in their development that can say, okay, these are little red flags. And then, um, you know, when they're just really struggling in that area, it, it, I'm all about early intervention. So, you know, we do, we do evaluations on five-year-olds, six-year-olds easily. Um, and if there is even a red flag there, we refer them for intervention, even if we don't make an official diagnosis because, you know, the diagnosis is great, but if there's a weakness there, like why not intervene? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I just was curious how you would go about doing that and, and what age, just because they are so young mm -hmm. and still learning to read and mm -hmm. catching those things. So, so I think it's, um, it's worth saying that, uh, you know, the, the program works not just for dyslexics. Um, so I, my daughter um, has ADHD. She's, she's 29 years old and she's get, getting, going to be a nurse and got a bachelor's degree and she's very successful. Um, but she, I had to take her uh, to um, Brainspring for tutoring when she was in elementary school because of her ADHD. She was falling behind. And um, so she learned all the techniques, all the multi-sensory techniques, the finger tapping and pounding and all that good stuff. And um, I, not too long ago, um, I was, we were together and she was trying to, she was trying to remember something or trying to, she was studying. I can't remember the exact situation, but um, it was a, a piece of information that she knew she had to remember and recall. And she started pounding. She started pounding it out as she said it so she could remember it. And I was, I was amazed by that, that, that that really resonated with her. I mean, that worked for her. And as far as I know, she still does it. She still does it. And I share that story um, with little kids um, when we go into the coaching situations in schools. Um, kids will often say, I don't, I don't want to do that. You know, fifth graders or whatever. I don't want to do that. That's babyish. And I'm not going to do that. And, and I would tell the story of my daughter who's, you know, ancient as, as far as they're concerned, she's 29 years old, but mm -hmm. still pounds and, and, uh, and how it's not about, has nothing to do with, with, um, you know, something that little kids do. It has to do with your brain and it's, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's all about muscle and it's all about uh, kinesthetics and uh, memory and all that good stuff. So I, I, that you're, you're exactly right that it, it, the techniques that they're learning um, help them now, but carry them through at, mm -hmm. forever, really forever. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's great. Yeah. yeah. And I think you speak to that. It's not just um, for dyslexia. I mean, we've had lots of students with um, ADHD, with, you know, dysgraphia, um, math issues, dyscalculia. There's, there's learning issues, um, that regardless of the diagnosis, this systematic multisensory approach really takes, breaks it down into such small components mm -hmm. um, and then kind of like sequentially like builds upon that. So it's like building blocks, one little thing at a time. And it's really whatever the area of weakness is. And that's where when we do our evaluations um, and they're, they're comprehensive, we can figure out all of those areas of weakness and not just the components of reading because it's you know likely affecting other areas as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. What can we say to our older students um, so that they don't feel like this is babyish in any way? You know, what can we, many times teachers ask us, you know, how do I get buy-in from my, you know, sophomore in high school? What kind of things mm -hmm. could we say to kind of help them out? 
You know, the, the high school age and, and late middle school age is a really challenging time developmentally um, with, frankly, almost everything. So, you know, whether it's suggesting tutoring or extra homework or extra, extra practice, extra things, unless they're super interested in it. Like if they're a baseball player, they'll go to practice a baseball, you know, many, many hours. But if it's something that they're not so interested in or they, they don't see like an immediate kind of feedback um, loop, they might be less likely to participate in it. And if their friends aren't doing it, that is another big problem. So, you know, like they're looking around and other kids might be practicing for sports or practicing for other things, but they're not having to go to extra tutoring or extra support. And, um, you know, what we do as psychologists is we, we talk about that first because pushing them into it, it, it just honestly doesn't work long-term is they've got to put themselves into it. It's, it's, it can be very short-term. It can, we can say like, Hey, go for eight times and just see if we can get some of these built up. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go for years. Like mm-hmm. we can really hone in on a specific area of weakness. We figured out what that is, you know, you know, maybe um, commit to just a handful of tutoring sessions because they don't, they want to see that it's, that's a start and a finish point because to them, it feels like it's going to go on forever. So if we can help them to commit to a certain amount of sessions um, and then say, you know, at that point, if, if you're not finding the benefit or if you're wanting to stop for a bit, we'll put that back within your control, but give me a good eight sessions of tutoring with your full commitment and let's see where we, where we go. Right? I'm using the, the number eight arbitrarily. Mm-hmm. I, you know, there might be a different number, but something that has a start and a stop to it, mm-hmm. um, it can really help them to get on board. Yeah. See a light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was a high school teacher. Um, I taught high school English and I, I feel like um, if you're just honest with the kids and say, guess what, this is what's going on. And, um, and this is the, this is the science behind what we're doing. I mean, we're not doing it because we want to hear you banging on a table. We're not doing it because we want to hear noise and you talking all the time. We're doing it because, because there's a reason because it's doing something to your brain. And I think that sometimes they, um, that's all it, sometimes all it takes is just to say, okay, acknowledging that we don't think that, that you're not smart. Um, we're not asking you to do this because it's, you know, we're not being condescending. Um, this is, we know something that will help you. And, and even just using the terms, you know, um, the correct terms, you know, kinesthetics and, and, uh, you know, tactile and auditory and all these terms that we say all the time, um, using those terms with those kids as well is really going to be, um, I think is going to be important for them. Um, I also did a, some observation of a teacher um, whose kids were giving each other, they were high school, giving each other the three-part mm-hmm. drill. And when um, the one student was, was doing the auditory part of the drill, he would say, give me the five graphemes for the phoneme A. And that's the kind of terminology they used. And, and they were it was amazing. I mean, they were, they bought in mm-hmm. and it was mm-hmm. cool to see. So that's awesome. Part of what we do um, in our office with the evaluations is we have a session that's called a demystification session. Mm-hmm. And, and what that does is we meet with the student at all ages, um, you know, as young as five or six and age appropriate terms, uh, you know, all the way through college and beyond. And, and we help them to understand what is going on and what their strengths are. And what what the intervention with BrainSpring, for example, might look like. Um, so we're connecting that to our data um, so they can actually see what's happening. And that's where we often get our buy-in um, mm-hmm. with the high school students is, is they're part of the process yeah. and we're not just telling them what to do. Yeah, I love that demystification session. I'm going to use that. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. Great. 
I think I'm next. I think um, we got, no, not I think. We kind of touched base on this a little bit. Well, in one of your answers, you kind of already answered this, but a lot of times we'll hear, my kid was fine and reading, and then all of a sudden she just started giving up. And so what could that be? But I think you kind of answered that a little bit and saying, well, if they're showing behaviors outside of, you know, and avoiding schoolwork or something is going on, it could be a red flag. Um, so, I mean, you kind of answered that a little bit already, oh. but um, if some parent, if a parent did come and say, you know, what could this be? They were doing fine and all of a sudden they're just giving up. Mm -hmm. um, how would you address it? Um, you know, as the complexity of the words and the amount of words grows with, with each educational year, um, their compensatory strategies, the things that they've used to kind of their workarounds might not be enough. Um, and they appear to be fine with reading because they were compensating um, through their intelligence or through some of their other strengths. And um, as the errors become more obvious, um, like when it starts to affect reading comprehension, when it's not really their reading comprehension that might be affected, but it's the mechanics of the reading, and then they're getting things wrong um, on tests and stuff, then they can start to say like, oh, you know, I just, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't really like school. I, I just kind of feel like I'm not a school person. And what's happened is the it's like riding a bike on a, on a paved road. And over time, that road gets muddier and muddier and muddier. And they kind of run out of steam. They run out of energy because they're looking at perhaps their peers that um, the ones that, you know, aren't struggling with this. And, you know, the peers are kind of riding on a on a paved road and they're, they're just trying to keep up um, and, and they're getting tired and, and that's that internal stress reaction. We can't see it. Mm -hmm. So it's not like we can see, you know, that there's somebody on a wheelchair trying to keep up with somebody running. Mm -hmm. You can't see the wheelchair, right. but it's internal. And, you know, eventually it's just like, you know, I've kind of had enough of this. I'm just not, I'm not wanting to do this. And so that's where you see the withdrawal or shutting mm -hmm. down or the defiance. Um, and it's, it's actually really sad to me because you know, these these are the kids that can very easily achieve their dreams. They're very smart and they have a lot of talents, um, but they start to say things like, oh, school's just not for me or just not my thing. Um, and they start to develop almost that identity, mm -hmm. which started um, because of some of these undiagnosed struggles. Mm -hmm. um, and it really didn't have to be part of their identity. So what we do is we kind of unravel that a little bit and go back in time and say, okay, here, this is this is what you've been going through and let's clean up this road a little bit. And that's where, you know, we refer for the tutoring or some of the bypass strategies um, to help them clean up that road a little bit. Yeah, I thought it was interesting actually when, when you said before about um, students coming to um, get an evaluation and they were going into college or they were trying to take the SAT and to think that their compensation strategies were able to get them that far. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. that's, that's pretty mind boggling to me. I mean, how intelligent mm -hmm. they are to be able to mm -hmm. get through high school and you're trying to take an SAT and that's where you see the struggle. Um, that's, yeah. it's impressive in a way, you know, um, that's, that's a long time to go through that. Um, it is. And they only have themselves to compare it to. So they're staying up till one or two in the morning trying to get their work done, you know, and, and probably have some supports along the way that just become a natural part of that family system, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of the support um, for that. And then, you know, eventually there's, there's an end game to that <laughs> because, um, you know, you have these standardized tests, which are dependent on speed and fluency and, and, and 
the, the mechanics of that process working quickly. And so they get into these testing centers where there's, you know, a million distractions, they're under time conditions, they can't stay out till, up till two in the morning, <laughs> rereading and rereading and, and listening, you know, through an auditory device. Um, and so that's where their scores might be lower. But we find that it's the scores are not representative of their true strengths. And if you are thinking of like college or getting into a degree program or even careers, um, you know, as, as an employer myself, we have, mm -hmm. I have 18 employees, like these, those are the kind of students I want, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, those are the ones that are working so hard to get yeah. there. The think about the tenacity so that takes yeah. to, to reread yeah. and stay up until 1am doing work. Oh, it's, sure. it's impressive. I mean, cause I, and you can for understand, sure. mm -hmm you know, and empathize why students would put their hands up and say, this is, I'm done. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I get yeah. it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so we have a question here that, that um, is asking, you know, what, what is necessary for a student with dyslexia to succeed academically? So it's kind of what we're, we're talking about. That tenacity is definitely mm -hmm. um, one of the things, um, but um, what else do they need uh, to succeed in school aside from, you know, their inner, their own uh, motivation and outside tutoring. Is there something mm -hmm. else that, that would help them? Um, so, you know, the, the school-based accommodations, um, in addition to the specialized tutoring, that brain rewiring mm -hmm. um, component that we already talked about, you know, there's school, school accommodations that can help, um, again, sort of smooth that path a little bit and put them on the same playing field as all the other students. So, so we're not asking for extras. We're just saying, help them to, um, you know, to even the playing field. So you have the, the school accommodations. Um, and the, the thing I find, um, again, it's that early intervention piece of it, is as they get older, you need their buy-in to advocate for themselves. And um, the students that I find to be most successful are the ones that have um, had the experience of somebody explaining this to them. Uh, thoroughly like we take an hour hour and a half two hours yeah. to go over this with them so they really understand sometimes they even come back before we even recommend intervention because they're going to have to drive the, the the ship um you know or man the ship throughout the process so when a teacher doesn't understand or when they need an accommodation or they need extra time um you know by 15 16 17 you know mom and dad aren't there mm -hmm. um and so if they're not asking for that extra help or those school-based accommodations then they're not even on the same playing field as other students in their class mm -hmm. so i find that that is probably in addition to the interventions probably the most important factor is mm -hmm. their understanding of what's going on and their willingness to advocate for themselves mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. right there's a lot of adults who are afraid to ask questions and mm -hmm. and be an advocate for themselves in that way for clarification. We do a lot of role playing in our practice where you can't like can't just say okay advocate for yourself or you know talk to your teacher like what does that mean? They they don't know how to do that. And so that, that's a skill set. You're not born knowing how to do that. Mm -hmm. And so if that hasn't been modeled for you mm -hmm. or you haven't been taught how to do that then again we're setting them up for failure again. Mm -hmm. So we have a kind of a skill building program that we we role play and depending on the age of the student, you know, practice that over and over and over so that when it comes time for, you know, a teacher to maybe not understand or maybe to forget that they have an IEP or 504 or something like that, that they can, they have the words to use that are assertive yet kind um, and appropriate. Mm -hmm. That's great. My experience working with, um, at BrainSpring with kiddos and students with dyslexia is when they, when they got to the center and they got to, to me or their tutor, they just they were at ease because we had a relationship that was a safe place for them and they felt like they were progressing and they weren't going to be judged and it was just 
so much growth happened just from that alone. Mm -hmm. So that's cool. I just want to squeeze them all. Um, so what criteria do you look for in an appropriate dyslexia intervention? And how would you compare Orton-Gillingham tutoring with, with general tutoring? Um, so Orton-Gillingham tutoring um, is, there's some overlap with general tutoring, but I see it as, as quite different. Um, and uh, I think an appropriate dyslexia um, intervention tutoring, such as Orton-Gillingham, is, is highly individualized. It's, it's um, very, uh, like the glove kind of fits to that student, and you figure out exactly where um, the building blocks, like that brain-based stuff I was talking about, where the missing pieces are, and you systematically um, build those building blocks in the brain, so to speak, um, using multi-sensory intervention. So a lot of different kind of out-of-the-box sort of approaches. Um, and I think that's really, really important. So you're not only following what research shows us, and that's, you know, it's, we, we only refer to um, Orton-Gillingham programs that are truly following the model um, and not just thinking that they are, mm -hmm. <laughs> because that's really, really important um, because it works, but you have to you have to follow the model that's been researched and proven to work, mm -hmm. you know, along with um, being able to connect with the student that you're working with. So it's not just a manualized tutoring approach. There is a relationship there and the connection with the student, I think, is really, really important. Um, so it's not just a computer going through the tutoring and, and, and doing it. it there's a, a person on a person um, that that relationship helps facilitate that program actually working. And, and the tutor, um, you know, I, I've known a lot of tutors and Orton-Gillingham tutors um, over the years. I think the ones that do the best intervention and I see the best approach are the ones that are willing to say, okay, wait, let's, let's stop here for a minute and handle this roadblock before racing through to the next mm -hmm. thing. <laughs> um, but then, and then also not staying on one thing for too long where the student gets bored. Mm -hmm. um, and so there is a dance to that. And that, that comes with um, you know, the expertise of the tutors, the training of the tutors, um, the components of that, that Orton-Gillingham program. Um, it's not just following a, a guideline kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I see that as different than general tutoring. General tutoring, the common, you know, it's typically one-on-one. -on -one. Yes, they might be building a relationship, but they're not doing that systematic intervention piece. They might just be getting through homework time or reviewing content or finding out how to figure out where the answers are, memorization, um, you know, all the things that go into getting the homework completed or helping them to understand what is being presented to them at that time, but they're not necessarily going back to the building blocks of why they can't get it to begin with. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, with general um, tutoring, um, you might just need, you know, you need to continue that. <laughs> um, whereas with Orton-Gillingham, you're kind of correcting it at the base, yeah. um, which then allows learning to occur. So multi-sensory teaching, what is the significant value of that of kids for all ages if they're, if they're struggling in their reading? Um, so the, the multi-sensory approach, um, the, the benefit of that is that you're coming at it from multiple angles and not just one direct approach to, to teaching that skill or to, to building that brain block, so to speak. So you're, you're coming at it from different angles. So it might be um, tactile, like touch, and you're learning a certain thing through touch, or you're hearing it, and, and each of those blocks, and you're then combining it 
kind of um, in somewhat of a structured way so that it's it's building from all angles and and strengthens that that skill um, so that it can be used for for future applications so it's like kind of like a way to get in and not just one way mm -hmm. oh yeah for sure i mean i think the, the the biggest take home point is you can find all the components of of a good Orton Gillingham, you know, program and the components of school accommodations and and all of that um, components of a good, you know, neuropsych or psychoeducational evaluation. But just you know, kind of do your research and you know, ask people, ask around, get personal recommendations because it's really the people that have gone through this that are going to be your inside view to what that experience is like. So you know, I would I would get connected to um, you know Facebook groups or to community groups, um, talk to people because it really is so much of this unfortunately is word of mouth um, and you can't really tell what that service is like until you get some information from people that have used it um, so i would try to stay off the internet as much as possible um, you know do your initial reviews and try to find a psychologist or a tutor or, or whatever on there but then um but when you're looking for somebody to work with you or your your student or your child um, i think the personal recommendations really go a very long way we had a question actually from one of our listeners, uh, Lisa, and she said, my question is, can you explain the impact dyslexia has on math skills? I find it goes far beyond story problems. My understanding is that it also involves processing speed, yet many children with dyslexia are so strong in math. Dr. Pam, we'd love your help answering Lisa's question. Um, sure. So. Um, dyslexia affects math at the level of that um, sound symbol association that we talked about with the reading. So numbers are symbols and with those symbols attaches sound and then it attaches meaning and those basic components um, with students with uh, dyslexia it affects those those elemental components of it. So they can be extremely good at math and, and understanding math, just like they can be really great at comprehending um, and reading comprehension. It's kind of the same thing. But if the, the blocks of that process, the building blocks of that process, if there's glitches in there, um, then it can affect their math performance. So it's, you know, the story problems seem most obvious because that's reading and people think of dyslexia as, as only affecting reading. But um, remembering that math is full of symbols that you have to put together and um, create meaning out of. So it's the same area of the brain actually. Mm -hmm. And um, it does involve processing speed because if you think about it from that level, it's how quickly those symbols form into sounds and, and form into memory. So if you see two plus two equals four, eventually you don't see the number two and the num plus sign, the number two and the four. Eventually you see that as one unit, mm. is, is, it's one, one symbol, two plus two is four. So imagine putting a block, like a box over that, that's now one symbol mm. that becomes very automatic. You're not thinking about mm -hmm. it. So when I see that, I don't read two plus two equals four. I just know that two plus two is symbolized as four. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm talking about in terms of the building blocks of that sound symbol association. Mm -hmm. so it's very similar to reading. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like what you're saying is that um, people with dysgraphia or dyscalculia or dyspraxia, ADHD, um, they'll also benefit from multisensory in instruction. Um, is that what you're, is that what you, would you agree with that? Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Because, you know, what, what we're talking about is that, um, it's that systematic structured 
um, sequence of emphasizing the mechanics behind it. So each of those has, you know, a, a weakness associated with it. And the Orton-Gillingham approach addresses that weakness from multiple levels at the same time. So it starts simple and builds on it, but it's coming at it from, you know, remember all those sensory areas, it's coming at it from different angles all at once. So you're engaging all of those senses into building that skill. And that's where it becomes more solid and can affect things like reading or math um, you know, executive functions, which is the ADHD, you know, the focus and the attention mm -hmm. piece of things. Well, that's great. That's exciting. That's so interesting. I think when you were saying that we were all just like, what? Oh, I thought she answered that perfect. I did too. There's nothing <laughs> left to say. <laughs> no, I, I really didn't. I'm just <laughs> well, no, I thought it was, it was so well explained, like that automaticity piece of seeing it as a unit, just like we talk about the orthographic mapping mm -hmm. piece when it's automatic. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. All like the way you yeah. said it, it was so mm -hmm. clear. And I was like, oh, yeah, how I explain that that well. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> It will be so helpful for people. They, when I was at the center, that question came up all the time. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad to finally meet you. I can't thank you enough for taking your evening and spending it with us tonight. So thank you so much for coming and joining us and answering all of our questions. I actually learned a lot. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much. And I'm going to use the term demystification session from now on. <laughs> thank you so much. Yes, Dr. Pam, that was absolutely wonderful. We thank you for your time. Oh, of course. And it was certainly nice to spend the evening with you. And um, I love opportunities like this. So thank you for inviting me because it's so important to me. It's my mission in life to get people connected to good services and good information. So the stuff that you guys are doing over there is just outstanding and, and sort of part of my life mission. So thank you very much for uh, joining in me with that. As a participant was talking about her experience as an adult um, growing up with dyslexia and you know it sounded like there was almost an element of a shame and embarrassment uh, growing up you know uh, I don't know why I can't read I can't read and everything I, I do is so hard and um, and that that just makes you really insecure about not only your reading but about everything you know what's wrong with me that I can't figure out how to read. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, a uh, as an adult, uh, she was talking about, um, all of the, all of the ways that she has to accommodate, um, and was so happy, um, to finally figure out much later, um, that all of that was because she has dyslexia and, and not because, um, you know, as we were, as Dr. Pamela, uh, McCaskill, Pamela McCaskill was talking about, um, it has nothing to do with intelligence. It has to do with, you know, it's a, it's a processing thing. Um, but um, once, I think once people realize what they have, then they can kind of forgive themselves, you know, and, and give themselves a break. You know, it's, it's not, I think that a lot of people who, who struggle with dyslexia feel like there's something wrong with them. And that's, that's unfortunate. I mean, mm -hmm. I can relate to that. I mean, or to your story and experiencing that with students. I get it. Being a former director of one of our learning centers, I continuously listened to parents heartbroken. They learned to read just fine. But my child is this way. And how is it that I can't help them? How is it that we can't find the proper accommodations for my child, no matter which way we turn? And that was a pretty emotional conversation to have because here we have this tool, you know, this center could have been right down the street from them for years, 
and voila, we're making magic happen over here. And for years, they just did not know what to do, even from a young age. So it's, yeah, it's yeah. a, it's a key, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, I, you know, I talked about this a little bit with you on that little video that I did about, you know, kids feeling that they have a safe place. And, um, you know, I think that we as, as adults and as educators now, we know so much more about, about dyslexia than, than we ever did before. And so we can explain it to kids a little better and we can say, you know what, don't worry about it. There's nothing wrong with you. You know, this is just, it's the way your brain processes words and mm -hmm. it's no different than the way I process other things and everybody processes things differently. And so I think as educators, teachers, administrators, if we don't make such a big deal about it, then, you know, and we talk about it frankly with the kids and say, I know this is really, really hard. It's a, it's a, it's such a bummer that you, that you have to, that you're reading, that you have trouble reading. It's such a big bummer, but it's not the end of the world. And I know how to help you and let's, let's just not worry about it. Don't worry. You're not stupid. We don't like to use that word. You are just as smart as anybody else. And you have things about you that are are so special and you can do things that other people can't do. I mean, this is just the, the conversations that we have to have with, with kids just to help them kind of give themselves a break, you know, give right. yourself a break. It's okay. We, we know so much about the brain now we can help you with this. How about, you know, there's more than likely a few kiddos in this classroom that are exactly like you but they just don't know yet. They haven't discovered it yet. Mm -hmm. You discovered it. High five. Well, and you know, gaining their trust that it is a safe place. I had mm -hmm. a student who came to me and he was in sixth grade. I'm just going to call him Jason. But when he came in, every time he would come in, he would wear a hoodie. He had his hood up mm -hmm. and he would sit down at the table and his arms were crossed and he just kind of plunked down into the chair. Mm -hmm. And I had talked to his mom and his mom had let me know that he had just been diagnosed with dyslexia. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he's in sixth grade, so that's a late diagnosis. But what I told her was that says a lot about who he is. Mm -hmm. He's so smart. He mm -hmm. has come up with so many compensating skills mm -hmm. to get this far without ever any inkling. No one ever knew like mm -hmm. something was going on, but then things were getting so hard for him. Mm -hmm. He was falling through the cracks and right. he was doing, he wasn't doing well at all. So he came to me we started working together and it took a while for me to gain his trust. I mean, mm -hmm. he's also a sixth grade boy mm -hmm. and, and he just, it, it was hard. I had to pull out a lot with him, mm -hmm. you know, but mm -hmm. he, um, he really reacted well to humor and mm -hmm. soccer Mm -hmm. And he was a really hands-on kid. Mm -hmm. He did a lot of landscaping. And so we just, and he had like his own business. He was making mm -hmm. more money than I was at that point. <laughs> I, was, I was really impressed with him. So we worked together and I ended up building a relationship with not only him, but his family. Mm -hmm. And he ended up making huge gains, but it took a while to build his trust because I think he was older and he mm -hmm. had been beat down for so long in his confidence 
because right before he had come to me, his mom had said, I just broke down in tears. She was in tears talking to me. Mm -hmm. And she said, he came to me and just said, mom, I'm just stupid. Mm -hmm. I'm stupid. Nobody, I'm never going to learn this. Mm -hmm. Nobody understands why I can't get this. And then only a month later, he got the diagnosis Mm -hmm. and uh, he ended up. So when I first started working with him and doing this method, it, it was hard because it seemed so childish, I think, because mm-hmm. it was so basic. He didn't mm-hmm. know some of his basic letter sounds. But then, you know, so we built it up and then he left me in eighth grade and he went on to high school. But he was doing basic CBC words when I first mm-hmm. started working with him. He didn't know what short vowel sounds. By the time he had left me in eighth grade in just two years, he had he was doing the structures program. He went wow. all the way through all four layers. And that... And I kept telling him, like, that speaks volumes to who you are because you're so intelligent. Right. You're so extremely smart, just building up his confidence because he was, he is. Yeah. And what was so nice is uh, I got a text from his mom back in May. He just graduated high school and he made cum laude and he is going to college and he's doing he's doing more of like a trade school and he's always been super hands-on and he likes that stuff. And he was like just glowing in these pictures and he's such a different kid from when he was in sixth grade where he just looked so beat down and it took a while, but I mean, it it just took such a toll on him, but he just needed to know like, you can do this. You're super smart actually. And it hit at such an awkward time in his life too. Right? Like sixth grade is, Hard yeah. enough as it is, let alone throw that right. into the mix. I was just going to say, so I, I was uh, had a little conversation with a, a kid at a high school who was using, uh, the teacher was using Orton Gillingham. She was doing kind of a lot of, a lot of things, uh, all multisensory stuff. And she had classes called Orton Gillingham. So it was amazing that her school said, yeah, the kids are going to be able to register for Orton Gillingham. And wow. so some of, and so she taught three separate classes. Some of the kids were, um, two of the classes were, were special ed classes. And one was a, a gen ed class for kids who were just struggling. And it was bit. structured, like it was a structures program or what was? It was not structured. Well, she was using, she was using uh, some Greek, doing some Greek and Latin roots, but it wasn't, it wasn't the structures program as we know it now. It was phonics first is really what she was, it was doing with them okay. and then adding in some roots. But Anyway, so I, I go in there, this is high school, like 10th, 11th, 12th graders. And I just was watching, observing, and they were doing all the things that, that everybody does. They were, they had the sand trays, they had the blending boards, they were doing all kinds of, the, all the multi-sensories. Anyway, after I, I just kind of walked around and talked to individual kids a little bit, just to talk to them. And, and this one boy who was this, you know, big football player kind of guy and um, real confident. And I asked him, I said, how did how did you feel when your teacher pulled out these, these letter cards? You know, mm-hmm. when you first signed, when you first came to this class, how did you feel when, when she asked you to tell you the sound, tell her the sounds of the letters? What, what, what did you think of? And he said, well, you know, I thought it was kind of babyish and I was mm-hmm. kind of like, eh, I don't, I don't want my friends seeing me do this. And I, it was kind of embarrassing. I said, but you're so engaged now. He says, Yeah. yeah. Um, this is my second year in this class and now I know how to read. And he Mm -hmm. goes, and you know what? I'm going to go to college. And I almost started crying. And I, he said, I never could, would have ever thought that I could go to college, but I'm going to go to college now. And I don't care what anybody thinks. And I know how to read. And so that, there you go right there. Mm -hmm. You know, that kid didn't have that confidence all the time. 
Mm -hmm. And um, because he went through that intervention, he now has his confidence. And he, you know, well, he and he got it. to make that choice, right? To, yeah. Like it was an elective or, yeah. you know, yeah. I wonder how she, you know, when you, when you yeah. sign up for classes, there's like a description underneath it and it says, right. right. And I wonder how she, she described it or got those kids to sign up for it in a way that they knew, I know what I'm signing up for, but it's, yeah. it's going to be geared towards me yeah. because we need yeah. a little bit of that yeah. because kids need it. And it's yeah. so hard when they're she that She was old. really amazing. I, and I wish I honestly don't remember what her name is. She's the one who said, you know, come on in and, and sit down. And she told the kids who I was and, and everything. And um, then she shut the door and on the door, on the window, there was construction paper. And she said, you know, the kids don't, they don't want their friends looking in the window and seeing them arm tapping redwoods. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not going to be, not going to be good. They were all in the same boat. And mm-hmm. so they all were like, I'm not that different from yeah. anybody else and they were they were doing such a great job it was so fun I I went and observed her class several times because it was really really inspiring to see well and I don't think like the way that I explained it to that student I was talking about kind of similar to the student you're talking about I guess is I go when I learned this stuff as a teacher I went to college this was my background I'm supposed Mm -hmm. to be a teacher and know this stuff and Mm -hmm. I went to this class and I left there knowing more in that Mm -hmm. one class than I had collectively learned Mm -hmm. in my whole college experience. So Mm -hmm. even as a teacher, this was all new to me. This was like Mm -hmm. really interesting and fun. Mm -hmm. And it puts you so far ahead of other kids. You don't even realize that there are so many other kids who won't know the things that you know. I go, because as a teacher, this was crazy information for me. And I'm like, and now you have it. That You're a step ahead of so many people. You have no idea. Mm-hmm. It was fascinating. I feel exactly the same, Katie. I graduated university in 2006. I did not know how to teach a child to read. Absolutely not. My first fifth grade classroom, I think of it now. I know I had multiple with dyslexia for sure. One of which I used to tutor and I kept wrecking my brain. How do I teach this kid? He can't read. He's 10. How do I do it? I couldn't believe it. I walked into this, this professional development, that brain spring, how, like you were saying, Katie, and I'm like, mm-hmm. whoa, my brain was really transformed. And, you know, sometimes it's hard for parents to kind of understand just, mm-hmm. I guess, the brevity of it. And then like, I remember a parent saying, oh my goodness, my, my third grader who has not read one word suddenly read a word on a menu and he suddenly read a word on a billboard and she was in tears and I was in tears and the kid was like running around. I can tell you why it's an open syllable or closed syllable and why it ends with this or why it doesn't. I mean, the knowledge that they have Mm -hmm. is it's incredible. Yeah. And they can soak that in too. Yeah. And you're right. You're exactly right about them knowing things that the gen ed population does not know. I mean, Mm -mm. you know, um, we, I used to do um, syllabication um, with kids at school, fifth graders, and I'd always ask who wants to come up to the board and do the do this work. And every single time without fail, it was our learning center kid who said, I want to come and do it. Mm-hmm. And they would go up there and do it. And the other kids would say, how did you know how to do that? Mm-hmm. How did you know that? And they would be so proud. I go to the learning center. They were yeah. so proud of that. They're I- eons ahead. Yeah, man. Exactly. I was like, you have so much work. And if you think about it, they learn things that teachers who don't have that background, like me pre taking any of those trainings. If a kid came up to me and told me that, or told me the reason for open and closed and, you know, Mm -hmm. schwa, I would be like, Hey, 
<laughs> you know, like the, yeah. the information that they gain from that and then are able to, you know, tell it to other people yeah. and shine because now it's kind of like bragging rights, right? Mm-hmm. They get in front sure. of those other kids. Um, yeah, yeah. Lots of tears with those kids. I know. Sure. Happy, sad in the beginning. You just feel so empathetic towards their situation, but knowing that it's going to change. And then at the end, it's like, mm-hmm. man, I cried for like a day when I got that text from my, <laughs> from my, that parent. I was so happy. I got all these pictures. Yeah. And I was like, it's so sweet. And I was yeah. so happy for him. Yeah. Awesome. Love it. <laughs> all right. Okay. Bye guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.